When it comes to weight management, we tend to focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. That's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up today. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Benched with Bubba, episode 608. The 2023 season's over, for those that have kept track at home. So we are still recapping 2023, always looking forward to 2024. But before we dig in too far into 2024, it's fun to talk about the good things that took place in 2023. And one of the really good things is um, winning an overall championship in the NFC. You know, we like to just win leagues once in a while. with winning overall for $150,000. That's pretty cool stuff. Just going to throw it out there. So I have a special guest joining me today. He's been making the rounds. I've had the pleasure of interacting with him on Twitter and in the YouTube chats for, for a couple of years now. Um, he's a really, really good fantasy player. You can find him on Twitter at Fru underscore Dorte. Drew Forte, how you doing, my friend? Hey, Bubba. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I've been a listener for a few years now. I appreciate all the content. You're one of the hardest workers out there. You're putting out content every day at the first pitch podcast bench with Bubba, Bubba in the bloom. So uh, I love the work you've been doing and I'm happy to be on and happy to talk about the fantasy baseball season that was and you know, what we may think happened in 2024. That's what I'm looking for. First off, thanks for the kind words, actually. Thank you. Uh, But we will, uh, we will definitely have some fun with this because you've uh, I remember a couple years ago, you you were like uh, hitting me up with questions or, doing this and that because you, you started listening to the show and uh, and then all of a sudden I see this year there's this name at, towards the top of the leaderboards and overalls. I'm like, what? And then next thing you know, he's winning the whole thing and he's on podcast. I'm like, well, I got to I gotta send a message. Like, we got to get this guy on the show. So I'm looking forward to it. But for those that don't know, let's just have a little background before we dig into yeah. the success that was 2023. And um, let's just go to how long have you – the simple questions. How long have you been playing fantasy baseball for? Because um, it's fun. Like, you talk to, like, you know, the Phil Dussos. Oh, I just started playing like four years ago and I win the whole thing. And then there's guys that have been playing since they were like in high school. So uh, how long have you been playing fantasy baseball? I've been playing fantasy baseball since 2006. I was a teenager back then. Uh, Since 2006, it started a Yahoo head-to-head league. I still play in that league. It's adapted a little bit. It started as an eight-team league. Now it's up to a 12-team league. But I've been playing since 2006. Then I I migrated over to uh, a league I played with, Rob DiPietro. Uh, I was on a podcast with him back in the middle of the season. If you want to hear it, that rule, that league had some crazy rules. Since so that league, uh, I had another home league that I still run. It's, a, it's an auction keeper league, which is a lot of fun. And then I, I started migrating over to 
playing also in the NFBC in 2019. And I've been playing in the online championship since 2021. And uh, I, I love it. I love all things fantasy baseball and, and baseball in general. So. Third year in the OC and you take it down. That's pretty, pretty good. Like this was my second year and I was happy just almost winning a league and I got hosed into third place on like the last day. That was just went from like first to third in a week. That was devastating, but this is not about me today. This is about you. So uh, it, it is a, a totally different format that uh, takes some learning. To, so the, the fact that you nailed this in the first three, three years is good. Like, you know, we were messaging like the guilds for instance, and I've had him on, he's an amazing fantasy player and he does well on the 12 teams. Like he's got a science and he was mad with the 17th overall this year. Cause he's been top five for three straight. He won it all last year. So he's kind of got this like rhythm to it. The fact that you figured out your rhythm for them, like you, you had what two top ten teams, right? Yeah, I think uh, the second team faltered a little bit the last week. Uh, it fell to thirteenth overall. Okay, but, but still, that's pretty darn good. Yeah, pretty darn good. So, uh, so to, in your third season, you had two top thirteen OC teams, which is pretty darn impressive. I'm just going to use the term OC for people listening. If you're curious, that is twelve team online championship uh, fab leagues on an FBC. I know sometimes we, we like to cater to all formats. This is going to be strictly primarily an NFPC show. Um, but, uh, yeah, 12-team format, which is impressive. I would imagine that's your preferred format now, but uh, I'll ask anyways because you said you played head-to-head with your you know your home league forever, and there's always a, a spot in our hearts for our home leagues, no matter what where you play and how you play it. And I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm the one I think you're talking about with Rob, I've heard him talk about that many times. It's a bizarro league at times. Yeah. But um, how, how what is your prefer, preferred format? Yeah. I, I really enjoy the 12-team mixed format. And the reason I like it is, one, I, that's what I, I grew up playing, what I still play. So there's a, a comfortability with it. There's, you know, I, I'm used to it. And what I enjoy about the 12-team the format is, is there's a good balance between the draft and fab. And you need a good draft to succeed and to, to, to do well, but you also – need to do well in fat because there's those impact players every week. And, 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 you know, Bubba, when you're playing these online championships every week, there's a, a, a guy to add a quality talent. And so I, I enjoy both parts of those, that it, it's equally weighted draft and fab in terms of, in terms of success. Yeah, that's what I, I talk about it a lot because, you know, I'll have my guests like Curlin's a 15-team guy. Toby was a 15-team guy primarily till this year. He, like, crushes a 750 OC. Um, but, like, I, I like my 12s for that reason. It's like I always say, well, fantasy is supposed to be fun. You're in a 15, like, some weeks in fab. That just isn't fun. That's just miserable. Where, like, in a 12, as you said, there's always a handful of at least people you can look at on a waiver wire and go, okay, that makes sense. So, yeah, I, I can put some money on them or some, like, major impact guys, like you said, especially this year. With all the call-ups we had, there was a ton of them. Um, and I, I do want to get into your fab philosophy in 12s eventually because yeah. that is just bizarre world, and I know you know exactly what I mean. But, um, yeah, the, the 12s I just enjoy because it's like, you know, 10s it's almost too shallow at times because it's just mm-hmm. everyone's got an all-star team and it's just right. whatever you want it to be. But that 12 kind of gives you that, that balance that you can draft a great team, like you said, but, you know, if you have an injury or a guy that doesn't perform, like we'll talk about your team. There's guys that stood out to me like, man, you probably dropped them quick. And that's just the way it worked. But you had options, which is yeah. great to, to, to consider. Where in a 15, you could be dead in a month. Like if you just have like three yeah. injuries, you're just done. There's just like no mm-hmm. hope. And that, that can be frustrating. Um, so you said you started the NFPC in 2019, year before uh, the pandemic. So you got at least one full season kind of before the, the weird stuff. And let's build back up to, to where we're at now. 
what got you to come over to the OC? Was it just word of mouth? Was it you were ready to up the comp- competition, quote unquote? Because that's always yeah. something that like listeners and stuff go, well, you know, I don't want to pay that money. We tell them what satellites and there's other ways to get into it and get the feel. What got you to come over to OCs or to NFPC? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So when I, I started playing in a, this crazy league, and, and the reason it's crazy is because you use teams from the AL and NL, but not all of the teams. So it was always awkward. So I, I found Rotowire in about 2018, and uh, their draft software was helpful for that, for picking different teams. And I started listening to the podcast, and I would hear Jeff and Scott talk about on every every Sunday night the main event, the online championship, you know, who's winning, who they were adding. And I was like, Oh, yeah, you know, that sounds pretty cool. It's something I should check out. And so I went in and, you know, like everybody you who starts in the FPC, you try to start small. I, in my first year, I, I played in one satellite league and I didn't do very well uh, because there's a learning curve. And I think a lot of things with fantasy baseball, from new leagues to, to new tools, there's there's a learning curve. You're never going to get it right away. And I struggled. Uh, 2020, I actually, so I, I always had goals that build up every year. After 2019, I said, okay, I want to get into more leagues, get into an online championship. 2020 came around and I actually only played in one NFBC league that I had drafted. It was a NFBC 50 league which I ended up winning, I, I think I tied. But I actually didn't draft any other NFBC leagues because I was so new that I didn't want the shortened season of 2020 to impact my thinking or my decision-making. So I wanted to go back and fresh with 2021, not being thrown off by a short season. And that was actually really beneficial. So I played in my first online championship in 2021, and I won. Uh, it was a beat okay. Todd Zola league. Uh, and I, I drafted well and. I think I drafted well because I wasn't influenced by what happened in 2020 in terms of short fab and you only have 60 games to make up points. And I I was able to put together a pretty good strategy to have success there. And then 2022, I played in two online championships and I refined my process. I actually didn't do that well last year. And I think that was a big driver of the success I had this year because I finished third in both of those online championship leagues and for if you're not familiar the online championship only pays out the top two spots very familiar right now yep yeah and (laughs) both of those i was in the i was in contention to win or come in second the last week one of them i would have finished second i streamed davis martin and we're going to get into fab i i got my 10th conditional bid that last week last year and i was stuck with him and he got blown up and that cost me and so i I looked back and we can get into this. I looked back at what I did right, but more importantly, what I didn't do well last year. And I really brought that of to this year of here's my mistakes. Here's where I think I can get better. Here's how I'm going to get better. And then it was just about executing it. And I, I think if I didn't have that failure last year, I'm not sure that I, I would have had the success that I had this year. So I, I think that's important for no one likes to lose and no one doesn't like to do well, regardless if you're playing FBC or Yahoo, ESPN, whatever league you're playing in. Look back, take the time now, look back if you didn't have the season that you wanted to have, if you didn't reach those goals and and figure out what went wrong, what the, the teams that did do well, what did they do 
well that you didn't do well and how can you apply that to next year i think that's great and that's one thing is uh you know you mentioned before the show you were talking about how like you don't have like an algorithm or all these things just about like hard work and putting the time in to, to research what or look into what other people are researching and write whatever all that kind of stuff but the, the thing I get out of that is hard work. And that's that's just the bottom line of anything in life. Like you, you, you know, certain people are smart enough to have a formula that prints things out, but the hard work made that formula. So that's just kind of how you got to go about it. So I want to go back to what something you mentioned there is um, I love the idea of, okay, yeah, we can all enjoy like our fun. It's by like Bloomfield and I on the last episode. We had fun. Like, hey, we won. Let's have fun. It's been a long season. But then we also mentioned, you know, the bad things. And we're going to record an episode on Thursday night. Lessons learned. It's like we each have our top four things we need to do better. Um, and that's just kind of how you like, you know, you have your fun, but get back on it. Cause I like the idea of learning from our mistakes better than, you know, keeping content with what we did right type stuff. There's, there's a lot to be said about that. So for you, how do you go about like looking back? Cause I know like one thing I've referenced a few times, I love what Jenny Butler said on the FTN pod with Vlad about, she keeps a diary now of her weekly fab. So she can go back and look at like in week six, this is why I did it. At least in her head, this is the, the process. And because fab, like we will talk about, is just a wild process. So how do you go back and look at whatever it was you did wrong in your head? How do you go back and looking at that and then, guess, trying to correct it without giving away all your secrets? Yeah. And I think that's – I actually plan to go in more detail than I did last year. And this year I'm working with a partner, Jason Perkins. Uh, we've had a very successful year. We partner in a few leagues just to get to know each other. I think we'll expand that relationship down the road and we'll talk later i think in the episode about working with a partner and the advantages i see with that and how it can be very helpful so and i think we want to work together of breaking it down by okay look start with the draft or even pre-draft what was our process where do we think uh you know we could refine where do we think we could do better what worked for us uh and then when you look at the draft yourself. So I'm going to look at draft board. I'm going to look at the other teams in the top 10. I'm going to compare what they did versus what I did. I'm going to look back at, uh, and we can, we, at some point, I think we'll probably dive into the draft and the teams. Like mm-hmm. what, what picks were good? What picks were bad? Were they bad picks because of bad process or were they just, you know, unlucky, right? You're not going to hit 30 for 30 on the pick. So yeah. You know, where, where did I go right or wrong with my thinking there? And then in season, what was working, what wasn't in terms of fab? I think that's a really uh, you know, an unexplored area, more or less. It's like really diving into your fab. Where were you overbidding? Where were you underbidding? Were you winning a lot of your targets? Were you not winning a lot of your targets? Uh, you know, how you can just get better at fab. Uh, and then... Yeah, I, I think that's probably how I'm, I'm going to dive into. And I've made plenty of mistakes, and there's plenty of oh, things yeah. for you know lineup decisions. Also, I think it's worth taking the couple of days to go through it because it'll help you now when your memory is fresh to to go through those things. So then, when you come to March or February and you're drafting, and then in the season, you you have back you have your notes that you wrote down of hey. I, I did this right. I did this wrong. I, I made sure I wanted to, to change this for next year. So that's a little I, bit about. I, I just love, I love the comment you made there that, um, you know, even for someone successful, like you were this season, we always did stuff wrong. So let's go figure it out. Like that's just, but that's just the truth of it all. Like when you lose, you think you just did everything wrong and nothing right. When in reality, you probably did more right than you yeah. think. 
that that's kind of where yeah. I'm trying to get with this. Like, even in a great year, there's always stuff to get better on. So that's like the that's like the the Kobe mentality when it, when it all comes down to it. Like, there's always something to improve on. Um, let's talk about the draft before like I keep asking questions and we just skip through the whole outline here. I'll, I'll try to keep us online for a second here, but I was going through your draft and first off you had the eighth, the eighth pick in your draft. Um, was that a target of yours? Where were you trying to KDS in this? Cause I know a lot of people map out like their X amount of rounds. How did you pick the eighth KDS? Yeah. So I definitely do map out rounds. I, I map out probably the first 12 or 13. So where I have different targets and then after that, I've just got a list of names and I'm just going through and as I get drafted, I'm crossing them off. Uh, but I, I do want to see what's available, what I think I can get later in the draft that influences maybe some earlier decisions. In terms of KDS, I went into it wanting a, a top six pick uh, because I saw six players more or less that I, I felt pretty confident about, uh, at least uh, later and and really Kyle Tucker was the uh, I, I Kyle Tucker yeah. I thought was a perfect player in the first round very low risk we what we could talk about process but I use a combination of projections SGP plus Ron Chandler's Babs and uh, Kyle Tucker has zero risk and the projections like them Babs liked him he's 30 30 if Dusty Baker ever moved him up in the lineup he would score <laughs> you know have better counting stats but he was a just a, a, a very high floor, high ceiling player. I, I don't play a lot of leagues uh, in total. I only have five five fab leagues in the NFBC, three online championships, and then two satellite leagues, which I use as kind of warm-ups to get used to the player pool. I play one gladiator. So, uh, you know, I, I like those high floor, high ceiling players. And so that was really my, my KDS auction. So... I ended up eighth and the more I, I looked into it and the more that I read it, you know, just thought about Otani, I became more comfortable with, with taking him there. And I, I had a pretty good idea when I had the eighth pick that he would be, he would be available at that spot. And I just thought he, he rated well again in projections and Babs and he just, had a, a higher floor than I would have thought. And again, the ceiling for him is out of this world. Yeah. Um, and and I, I'm glad you went to Otani because that was my question is, I know it's a glaring hole of mine. I always just have a hard time when it comes to Otani in, in the draft because I'm like in my head, I'm just too like caveman-y. It's like, okay, well, it's either this or this. And you, you know, how do you utilize, you know, X and Y? And did you prefer him as a pitcher, a hitter? Like, where did you see him when you were drafting him? Yeah. Obviously, he's a unicorn. That's what Shohei yeah. is. And it allows you roster flexibility in your draft. That's another beautiful thing mm -hmm. about it. But when you were looking at him in the eighth spot, you said you started to like loosen up to the idea of taking him eighth. You liked it. What was it? That, was it the hitter? Was it the pitcher? Was it the flexibility? Like, what was it that stood out to you as Shohei on the eighth pick? I think it was the hitter for me. I think is the combination that he would hit for a pretty good average. He hits home runs and he's, he does steal a fair amount of bases. I last year I struggled with, and we'll, we'll see this as the draft goes on. Cause we'll get to my fourth round pick, which really hammers us. So last year I struggled with power. I struggled accumulating home runs and I, I looked back at what I 
what I did wrong, why I struggled with home runs. And I just didn't have the, the guy that could hit the home run regardless of the ball, the ball environment and the run scoring environment. And coming into this year, we didn't know what the ball was going to be like. We didn't know if home runs would be up, if they would be down sideways, left or right. And so I wanted to get a couple guys that they can hit home runs regardless of the run scoring environment. And Otani fit that bill for me. Sure. And so you get that combination of, you know, hits a lot of home runs, hits for a decent average. He runs a fair amount and the pitching is bonus. And I really only used him as a pitcher a handful of times when he had a two-star week. Uh, I think the first start of the year where it was only a three, uh, you know, a shortened, a shortened schedule, but I almost predominantly used him as a hitter. And at the point where I would have used him at the pitch as a pitcher later in the year, if I well, I lost a lot of pitchers to injury, he got hurt as a pitcher. Yeah. So I couldn't even use him as a pitcher. So I, I thought of him almost exclusively as a hitter with just a pitcher sprinkled it when it was advantageous to use him at there. Yeah, that's probably where I would lean. I, I'd think hitter first because I just figured it's, he's rarely ever going to two start, so it's hard to really utilize it. Like, outside of certain weeks, obviously, when your roster dictates it, but uh, I'm with you in that regard. And then he went bets, which is obviously a, a smash. Uh, we yeah. love that. You went McClanahan, who got hurt, which we'll mention. We'll get to that back to that, but I wanted to hit on what you, you highlighted. You got Matt Olson in round four, and you were – you, what you mentioned about the power thing, that was one of my main goals in drafts this year. Like I have a ton of Pete Alonzo's and, and stuff like that. Cause I'm like, I'm just getting power early. I'm going to figure the rest out. Most leagues it worked out well, not all, because you know, you draft the smart people. That's the beautiful thing we're in here. But um, a, a Matt Olson in the fourth round is like, you literally have bets and Olson. You have like probably two of the top three or four MVP candidates in the national league. That's pretty, pretty good for a winning team. But uh, and then you got Otani steals bets, uh, steals a bit, not ton. Yeah. So when when you left those first four rounds, you had three hitters, and that's what I wanted to highlight there. Besides the power with Olson, you have three hitters, so you didn't go pitcher heavy yet. We will get to where you go next. But um, how did you feel with that base? Because it's like you got steals, maybe not as much as you can get from other guys in the first three rounds, sure. but you got a ton of power. So I'm guessing you felt confident in getting steals later. Yeah, absolutely. So. When I mapped out my rounds, I, I, there were pockets where there was pitchers I liked, and I thought I, I would have a decent, you know, decent options as pitchers, and just the way that the, the, the ADP was working, or where you could get certain players, I, I just liked the hitters up top a little bit, and then I knew, I could, I could fill in with, guys that I saw as, above average and and ace level starting pitchers. Uh, in the next few rounds. And in terms of attacking stolen bases later, uh, there was a really good article by Steve Weimer, the FTN draft guide about, you know, counting stats that you can accumulate, you know, throughout the draft. And the way that I looked at stolen bases, and I, I think this is one of the main reasons I, I had the success that I had this year is that, I think I was able to exploit the rule changes pretty well. So I didn't know the number of stone bases that were going to increase. There was Jeff Zimmerman throughout uh, numbers in the process. Jason Collette had an article on Rotowire about the stone base increase. We, we knew it was going to increase and we knew it was probably pretty substantially, but I don't think anybody thought it was going to go as high as it did. I yeah, think 40, 40%. Yeah. So I knew that stolen bases were going to increase. And so when they increase, they're a little less valuable because you expect 
there to be more stolen bases. So you need more stolen bases to compete, yes, uh, but you can find them all over the draft because more guys should be stealing bases. And by that measure, we didn't know what was going to happen with home runs, but by supply and demand, that makes home runs a little less valuable. And so I wanted to secure my power base and, again, get those guys that can hit home runs regardless of the ball environment so I don't fall short on home runs. And then I think looking at the draft board and some guys I like that, yes, I could find the stolen bases later. And you'll see that with some of the guys I drafted. And then we can talk about Fab, how I really attack that category in Fab. Yeah, I, I love that approach. Like, I wanted to get power, but I'm already, like, one of my lessons learned inside track for tonight's show is I had too many stolen bases. Like, it's something we talk Like, I had too – I was running away with the thing. So, I think I just, I went too heavy at times where I could have adjusted and went maybe a more power, like a 35 home run outfielder that doesn't steal a ton or just, like, different things throughout the draft. That's something I have to become better at. So, I, I like – that's why I really like the way you started, like – Betts is an elite player that doesn't steal a ton. So that's what kind of got him forced into their second round, where in reality, should he have been a second rounder? Probably not. Like, let's just think about it. So it's it's little things like that that, uh, that pan out. But let's hit on your next few picks here. Um, you went Gossman, Darvish, and then Felix Bautista. So on paper, obviously everyone's healthy. You had McClanahan, Gossman, Darvish, and then your first closer is one of the best closers in baseball before he gets hurt. So mm-hmm. you you literally left the first uh, what was it six rounds or oh, seven rounds with three outstanding hitters, potentially three aces, and the top closer in baseball. Um, how were you feeling at that time? That was all said and done. I know that's a pretty lazy question, but yeah. just looking at that board with the eighth pick, that's a pretty yeah. solid start to things. I, I felt solid. I felt like I was executing my plan, and I felt like I really hit my groove this year in terms of my draft process, my – actual draft setup uh, in terms of what a, what what views I had. So I felt coming out of those rounds that I was uh, staying balanced. Phil Dussault talked about it, has talked about pods. You know, give yourself options. Don't back yourself into a corner where you have to take a picture or you have to – you want whatever the board is giving, whatever the other 11 teams are giving you. So I felt I was balanced. I had my good power base. I had some stolen bases. I was – I, I knew Betts wasn't going to run that much. It was helpful about projections. I wasn't counting on him to steal even 20 bases. So like 10 bases is great for Mookie Betts. I was only counting on him for 14 or so. So I have my ace pitchers. I got a secure closer that I knew would get you know, pending health. I knew it saves. This was also when Bautista, I drafted this team, I think, in, in mid-March. Bautista had injury concerns, the injury, but he had started to throw again. Mm -hmm. So I felt a little comfortable buying that dip a little bit that it was seemed a little bit more precautionary. He was throwing, they were just kind of playing slow with him. So I got a little bit of a dip on Bautista and I was very, uh, I was very happy with that. So I I was feeling great after this, the first seven rounds. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the Bautista that time of draft season as well. That was a beautiful thing. I was very, very happy about. But uh, you mentioned something that we'll come back to your actual draft here in a second. You talk about projections and your draft process and everything, and yeah. we don't need all your secrets. But, like, what projections do you use? I know you mentioned yeah. SGP and some other things. Um, uh, there's, like, like I said, I, I recorded with Toby forever. Dude loves his SGP, loves his projections. He's got his whole thing, like, in, you know, the, the, the processes deal. He's got it. Everyone's got their way to do it. So what, what what were you using for your draft prep that made you kind of locked in on this this process? Sure, absolutely. So 
I do use SGP. I use a combination of the, the various projections on fan graphs, obviously the bat, the bat X, ATC, uh, zips also. I bring in uh, Rudy Gamble's uh, Rasball projections, which are steamer-based. I, I like Rudy's version because he tweaks some things by hand. Playing time is a big part of projections. If you use projections, you know that playing time can drive up or down value. So I like that Rudy is pretty hands-on with that and gives me more confidence in the, those playing time projections. And so that's what I, I, I use from a, uh, fr from a projection standpoint. I also try to, if possible, like a, a projection system that's maybe more done by hand. So I used to use Mike Wordhauser's pod projections because he did those all by hand and, it, and it's a little bit of a different process. So you get some different results and he identifies some players to have better skills or better projections than some of the automated projection systems. But Mike unfortunately stopped doing the projections this year. So I had to pivot a little bit. And then a couple years ago, I started using Ron Chandler's Babs in coordination with SGP. So I use them together and I came about this because projections are not perfect. I admit that. I think anybody who has a fair sense of projections understands that there's holes in them and there's things that they're good at, but there's things that they're not good at. And Ron Chandler developed this system that looks at a player's assets and liabilities and also brings in risk factors and looks at players more on a, a skill set and basically says that, hey, a 40 home run hitter could hit 50 home runs or, or 30 home runs, and that's all within a, a reasonable projection. But we want to know, do they have the skill to hit those home runs? Or do they have the actual underlying metrics that support them being able to hit home runs? And by using those in combination, I'm able to identify draft targets based on you know wisdom of the crowds. I like bringing in different opinions you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of articles. You know, I'm always trying to ask, trying to learn, and, and you're trying to see different players that pop pro and con. And so you're mm -hmm. trying to identify players that bubble up from taking in a lot of these different opinions with some of the crowds and finding the players that you want to target and then also finding the players that are maybe being overvalued in the draft room and those are guys to avoid. So that's a little bit about about my process and, and how I go about pulling together players. No, I like that a lot because it, it the point of kind of – I'm a big fan, and people, I know I have a lot of friends that podcast, and they're like, I don't want to listen to any other shows because I don't want to be influenced and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I actually like listening to other shows because I like to know what everyone wants to talk about. Like, you know, that's what your listeners are. I learn things by listening to other people. Um, like, there's – I think you can get better by listening to other people. That's kind of how the world works in my mind. So, you like you're saying, going and taking in as much information basically as you can, I think it's a good thing. Um, I know, I know a lot of people though, like, even when it comes to just draft process, they want like these three things and that's all I want to see. And that's what I'm living with. And Hey, whatever works for you. That's why I, I like asking yeah. pretty much everybody how, how you go about things, which is very, very intriguing to me. Um, let's get back to your draft here. Dominated the first seven rounds. You think Adamus, Tyler O'Neill, mixed bags there. You got one of my favorite catchers <laughs> in the world. And for those keeping track at home, Rasball player Raider catcher number one, William Contreras. So I uh, just got to throw that out there. Um, I, I love that pick. I mean, what Muncie Hap? You went hitter heavy, heavy, heavy after you got Batista. Literally two, four, five, six, eight straight bats. Was this a part of your game plan, or is it more like, hey, this is what the draft's given me? 
here we go. I like the pitching later. How are you approaching that? Because yeah. you don't see that very often. I think only to correct you, I think only five straight hitters. Because I okay. think then in round 13, I went Pablo Lopez and Montgomery. So okay. I had the pocket of five hitters. Um, again, trying to stay balanced. Trying to – I know I, I had drafted before that four out of five picks being being pitchers. And so it was back to back to the balance, back to accumulating some more stats, just guys that I like to be productive hitters. Again, hitters that bubbled up for me between the SGP and Babs. I again it was kind of pockets where like there was a few catchers that I liked, and William Contreras happened to fall in this one. It wasn't I don't know that I was like, I have to draft William Contreras, but he was the one who fell. It was a good process. It, uh, you know, it ended up working out great. He had even a better year than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, <laughs> the playing time, he played, I think, a lot more than anybody that, would That's why I loved him. I was like, he's going to DH or play first base or catch almost every day. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, and, you know, I, I liked Mac, Max Muncy. Also, I thought he had some multi-positional eligibility, second and third. I knew the batting average was was not going to be great, but he was playing off an injury last year and he was completely healthy. And again, he's, you know, just, he's a good hitter. He's a power hitter. And he, in that lineup, he has the ability to drive in runs and score a lot of runs. And again, just trying to, to fill out at this point, I had drafted two outfielders. I had first baseman. I had a third baseman and I had a shortstop. I had three starting pitchers. I had a, a closer, uh, I guess with half, I had three outfielders. So again, balance, right? I, I'm taking what the board, what the rest of the room is giving me, where I don't feel like I, I, I'm i pressed into a corner that I have to pick a certain position. Yeah, I, I love the balance here because even like we talk middle rounds a lot. All right, rounds 10 through 20 was Contreras, Muncy, Hap. But then you go get Pablo Lopez and Jordan Montgomery. Lopez literally is an SP1 that you got him at pick 152. He's probably, he might be a top 60, 70 pick um, next season, pretty confidently i think jordan yeah. montgomery's awesome thyra was great till he got hurt john gray had his moments and then even wit Baez gets gets interesting hanniger gets hurt but not much you can do at that point in the draft like those are good picks at that point um you really dominated a lot of this middle of the round i think which gave you the balance you're talking about when you get past round 20 now like you're going eovaldi uh luis your uh urias not urias estevez savali whitlock diaz maeda and others those last 10-ish picks where you kind of already have your balance set, like you mentioned, you got your definitely your main core sitting there. How are you attacking those final 10 picks? Are you going for like the gusto? Are you trying to keep it really balanced with solid floors? How do you attack the, the later rounds in this draft? Sure, absolutely. And, and just to touch your point, when you talk about speed later, when I mapped out, there was these were some of the guys that you had mentioned that I thought would be productive for a stone basis. So I like Tyro Estrada a lot. I thought I know you're a Giants fan, that he was one of the few guys they weren't going to platoon. He was going to hit high in the lineup. He had all the ability to run, and he and he did run. We know stolen bases is just about just as much about speed as it is the desire to run. Um, I liked Whit Merrifield also. I actually think I remember asking Toby <laughs> what his thoughts were, you and Toby on, on the pod back in the offseason. And I, I liked Merrifield. I thought he was going to play – play a fair amount in the Blue Jays lineup. And again, he's a guy who has run the past. And I thought with the new rules, he's got a pretty good chance to 
keep running. So that's how I, I planned out that I, I thought I could get some stolen bases. I thought I could also get stolen bases from Javier Baez. He was a, a boss. I could not wait to cut him. Um, but in terms of the last 10 rounds, my view for the online championship is when you construct a roster, and this applies to any any league of this size where you're drafting around 300, 360 players, there are options on the waiver wire. And when you get to these last 10 rounds, I look at it that this is your opportunity, the last even maybe 12 rounds, this is your opportunity to take, take risks. This is where you want the guys who, if they are healthy and they perform, they're going to be all year roster staples. They're going to be the guys that really out earn their draft costs. And if they're not, I want guys, if they're not going to be stars and be amazing, then I want the guys who are going to get hurt or the guys who are going to suck. And the reason I want, if it's that dichotomy is because you're looking for guys to cut early in the season. Easy cuts. <laughs> right. You, there are guys that talented players who are not drafted, who the first two months of the season, it's a, a rush on the waiver wire every Sunday to pick up those difference makers. So you need cuts. Like it, it's hard sometimes in all, I think it's harder than adding players in online championships. It's yep. harder to figure out guys to cut. So I wanted easy cuts. So I didn't care if a guy, you know, I want, obviously I hoped all these guys would become stars, but if they didn't become stars, I wanted to know that they were bad and that I could get rid of them easily. And so that was my approach with these last 20, 10 rounds. I did not want the Andrew Benatendi's of the world because Andrew Benatendi, if he's projected for 13 home runs and 13 stolen bases, that's yeah. 26. There's 26 weeks. I picked this as 26 fancy weeks, so it's 26. So that's a home run or a stolen base every week. So if Andrew Benatendi hits a home run in one week, you got what the projections are saying, and then the next week he steals a base, that's he's on projection. Like, how do you know if he's going to be good or bad? Like, that's what he's projected for. And I don't, I don't want those guys who are, you know, they're safe just because they're playing. I, I think you can stream better than that using the Rasball tools, 100%. Uh, you know, your own research. You, you can find more impactful players. So this is your chance to take the risk and find the Nathan Ovaldi, who was amazing for me. We could talk about later when we talk about, like, best draft picks or whatever. It, Nathan Ovaldi's stats on my team were – Unbelievable. Yandy Diaz, I thought, sure. was a, a great uh, a great bargain just because for what he was projected to do was very valuable. He hits leadoff. He hits for an amazing average. Um, he was a big target because I, I knew batting average is, you know, kind of fluky. You know, it depends on BABIP luck or whatnot. Pete Alonso, terrible BABIP this year, like drove down as like one of the worst BABIPs ever, uh, drove down his batting average. So it, it kind of ebbs or flows, but I knew I had a guy like Max Muncy, maybe not the best average. I, Yandy Diaz was like, he's going to hit for you know, a really good average. That's what he does. He's going to score runs. I didn't even care if he wasn't going to hit home runs. That's not what I needed him for. I needed him for what he was going to do, which is drive, you know, score runs and hit for a high average. So he was a, you know, a definitely clear target. Estevis, also I was on, again, it, you know, you try to take stabs at some different closers. They may not all work out, but you're trying to hit on a guy that I thought could be the closer. There wasn't a lot of competition in 
on the Angels, uh, Jason Collette had a good article on Rotowire about him being one of his, you know, top top closer you know, targets, a guy who could emerge. And, uh, you know, that was also a hard lesson I had learned with Estevez. Um, a few years in 2021, my first OC, uh, I've talked about this before, but uh, I got caught in the San Diego closers situation. Yeah. I had drafted Mark Melanson and I drafted Emilio Pagan. And the fab before the season, uh, I had I had the A's closer who I, I'm I'm forgetting uh, I'm forgetting his name Liam but, Hendricks. No, before before, uh, Liam. before Liam Hendricks, he uh, he ended up getting hurt. He had thoracic outlet syndrome before the season. Uh, Trevor Rosenthal. Uh, so I go into the the fab before the season starts, and I'm like, okay, Trevor Rosenthal closer. He'll be great. Okay, I've got Emilio Pagan and Mark Melanson, and that was in the San Diego beat writer was like, oh, it's Emilio Pagan's job. I think he's going to get the first up. Great. Drop Mark Melanson mm-hmm. before the season. Yep, been there before. To try to stream, to try to stream some bats. Mark Melanson ended up saving 36 games, you know, and then it came out, you know, during the season that the Padres basically handed Mark Melanson the job before the season. So it didn't matter if he didn't have a good spring training, if they weren't concerned. And Carlos Aceves, I saw similar things happening. And I looked at the situation. There wasn't a lot of competition for him. They had come out. He was struggling in spring training, but Phil Nevin had said, we're having him work on throwing high fastballs. Like we're not really concerned about his spring training performance. And so I, I never let that deter me. And I learned from previous mistakes. Again, it's, it's a theme of, hey, learn from, it's okay to make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. You know, I drafted a lot of guys who sucked. Tyler Neer was terrible. Javier Baez mm-hmm. was terrible. It's okay to make mistakes. No one is going to have a perfect draft or perfect fab or perfect line decisions, but learn from it so you don't try to repeat and make the same mistakes multiple times. And so I was steadfast that I thought Estavis could be productive. I wasn't going to drop him, and I held on to him. I didn't let the Jose Quijada thing. <laughs> it was never really an issue to me, but I was like, this is Estavis' job. I think he's got it, and he was so productive for me. So that's a little bit about how I treat those last – those last 10 to 12 rounds. I like that. I like that a lot because that's one thing I'm always trying to figure out. I know there are, are two because we hear the terms like churn and burn. You got to have a couple of roster spots. I think just the fact like your Andrew Benintendi example is just so true that I don't think a lot of us think about when you just think, okay, Andrew, is he steady? He's consistent. We can plug him in. We're going to get it. That plug it in is consistency, though, is not going to help you win. That's the difference. And that's what's very, very interesting there, especially if he, unless he like all of a sudden finds the stride, which who knows. Um, a couple things just looking at your draft as a whole. You basically had two closers, unless you want to count Fulmer as a third, potentially. And then you, your very last pick was your catcher, too, in Trevino. Uh, is that a strategy of yours, is to just kind of yeah. wait on the second catcher? And Because I'm a fan. I, I always say there's tons of catchers on the waiver wire. I got no problem with that at all. But um, sure. is, is the catcher and then the closing situation, was that kind of your goal going into it? Get like, yeah. well, at that time, I guess, one and a half with Estevez, or at least two pretty good guys and going from there sure so with the catcher so i i love reading the process tanner bell jeff zimmerman it's a great book i i highly recommend everyone read it it's one of the more invaluable resources i i try to reread it every year um, i i highly recommend one of the the things they talk about 
in the book is that there's an opportunity with the second catcher to stream it and that there's always catchers that become available on the waiver wire and you can stream guys for a week. You can pick up uh, guys who are more impactful for longer periods of time. And that's the way I, I treat the second catcher position is that I ended up, I dropped Trevino right away. I picked up Christian Bethencourt for a month plus he was great the race had a terrible like very easy schedule ter faced terrible pitching so Bethancourt was awesome then I kind of streamed some guys I unfortunately missed Yanir Diaz it was a miss of my part I had Travis Darno and Yanir Diaz available in the same week and this was when Sean Murphy had a hamstring injury mm, and I was yeah. like oh maybe he's going to be out hamstrings who knows he could be out for a month Darno playing 60 percent of the time in that Braves lineup you know, I was like, oh, he just, in the case that Murphy is out and ended up not working out, obviously, Yanir Diaz had a prolific second half, despite Dusty Baker refusing to play him. <laughs> uh, and so, but then a little bit later, last couple of months, I streamed Jan Gomes in and out. Yeah. And part of the reason I was able to overcome Max Muncy's 200 batting average on my team and Willie Adamas, I think, had like a 214 batting average on my team is my second catchers combined hit 270 this year. I had done the math. And Jan, Gomes hit, Jan Gomes, I think, on my team hit 280 or 290 for the couple hundred at bats. And that is just – that's awesome yeah. to not have a second catcher sink like that. So that's how I treat the catcher position. I like that. And then at least a catcher too. Um, and also I'll add, this is – there's plenty of ways to win. I, oh, yeah. Any any way to win, any, any system where you pick the right players, you can win. You can – you know, you could you if you picked Jose, uh, Felix Bautista in the second, you know, earlier than I picked him. If he's your first relief pitcher off the board, everyone thought you were crazy, but you would have been right. So yeah. there's there's no there's so many different ways to win. This is just my way of thinking and the way that I look at it for twelve for the twelve team leagues. Obviously, fifteen team leagues, you know, only leagues, points leagues. The strategy may differ. Um, so I always like to call that out because. You know, there's there's so, there's so many smart people out there. There's so many ways of thinking. This oh, just yeah. happens to be mine. Uh, and in terms of relief pitching, I I like to listen to people that are smarter than me, people that have had success in this format. And the the guild, Andrew Geller, I remember him talking about last year that uh, you know he he likes to attack maybe that second tier of closers and and really do the work. Mm -hmm. on trying to find closers i think everyone it's like oh you know i don't want to pay for for closers in fab or you know i want the security of just a, a closer in the first few rounds but there are saves available there are and obviously this year is unprecedented but there are guys do get saves and it, i i i really took that away from him that put the extra work into trying to to sort out the closer situations and because it's the one position that's not just based on skill. The manager has to use the guy in the ninth inning. It's true. And the team has to win games to put the closer in position to have a save. So it requires more work and more time to identify those situations. And that was something I, I changed. I spent a lot more time looking at closers and dissecting the closer situation and my closer strategy of how I wanted to attack it. Um, and obviously, I never thought Bautista would have 
this amazing of a year. I don't, I don't think anybody did. He no, struck at all not, 100 not batters. Yeah, it was crazy. It was insane. <laughs> so, and I mean, it, it takes things like this that, that vault you from winning a league to winning an overall. You hit 100% outcomes on a few guys. Mookie bets most RBIs ever from a leadoff position. Matt Olson broke, you know, 56 home runs, ridiculous stats, broke the, the brave, you know, you know, most home runs by, by a brave. Um, it, Felix Bautista, 100 strikeouts, a, a ridiculous number of saves. It, it takes guys hitting their 100% outcome that yeah. vaults you into the overall conversation. Um, but, and so, yeah, so that's kind of how I, I had attacked those those two different positions, and, and, and it, it worked out well for me. And one thing uh, about the catchers thing is if you want to stream catchers, they're always cheap, which is yeah. very nice. So you're not breaking the bank if you're like, you're trying to get the next big prospect. It's going to cost you triple digits. More often than not, you can get a catcher for a buck. I'm pretty yeah. sure you could get Young Gomes for a dollar every time you try to add him. Yeah. Um, like yeah. a couple of guys might go for three or four bucks, but you're not breaking banks for catchers, which is great. So that leads me to Fab. Let's talk Fab. Um, mm-hmm. And this is the thing I joke about every Monday or Tuesday when I record my Fab recap that you have the main events kind of structured and it makes kind of sense when you look at it. And, you know, most bids are within a realm of each other. Not in the uh, OCs. It's anywhere from like $500 to a buck. It's the craziest thing, league dependent, you can ever see on the face of the planet. And if anybody has a formula to figure it out, you're a millionaire by now. So because it's it, it's insane. So we'll start with just the basics of it. Mm-hmm. You play 12s. You prefer the OC. How do you approach Fab knowing the craziness here and the frustration we all have when we overspend by so much but then, like, sometimes my solace is, well, like, 12 other leagues, I wouldn't even have won the person. But it's like there's so many times, and you even when you're having years like you had, you had to have bids where you overbid by a ton. You're like, what just happened? It makes no sense. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you were very efficient this year. But how do you go pro- about that fab process? So it's good to bring this up. I, I love fab. I, I love – it's an uncommon thing. I think a lot of people have frustrations with online championship fab. I, I love it. It's the one, it, it's the opportunity to make your team better. You oh, get, yeah. you only get one draft. You get 26 weeks, 26 times to make your team better. And I enjoy the puzzle of it. I enjoy figuring out the bids. I enjoy trying to figure out who to drop. Like I talked about, sometimes I think it's harder to figure out who to drop from your team than 100%. who to hundred percent. And I enjoy that puzzle. I look at fab. I know you, you talked about the wild West. I look at Fab no different than ADP and drafts. When you look at ADP, it says one thing. But when you look at your the 200-plus online championship drafts, there's always going to be guys who go ho- higher than ADP and, and guys who go lower, and that's just the variance. So I think when you when – you, and something I try to do for my leagues, and part of the reason I also only play a few amount of – I only have a, so, a few – I only have a few teams in the NFBC – is because I want to look at the league tendencies in FAB. I want to see archetypes of bids and what are streaming hitters going for? What are streaming pitchers going for? What are the prospects going for in this league where I can really hone in and try to eliminate that overspend, those overbids? Because you only have $1,000 of FAB in the NFBC leagues. There's no $0 bids. You have to be conscious conscientious with your bids because if you start bidding 50 100 on every player 
you run out of fab really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, you know, have tight purse strings at times and, and really spend the time, in my opinion, of learning the ins and outs of your, your league and how they're treating fab. And I think that was that using that approach has helped me rein in my spending. I actually, so Rob McCabe uh, on Twitter, uh, he's been doing a lot of fab uh, within the NFBC. Uh, I I've connected with him a bunch. We we've messaged back and forth on, on Twitter. I still call it Twitter on uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, and he's doing a lot of great work. Uh, he's doing a lot of great work with, fab and and trying to figure out where as a, a community we can we can get better at fab uh, he's well worth a follow uh on twitter rob is is a great guy and so he he ran the numbers for me so uh i was actually 58 percent efficient with this online championship team uh, and the overall efficiency was 52 percent so I was above average and I had to be efficient because my league, I had Rob, Rob was very kind. He ran these numbers for me. So thank you, Rob. My league was 12th out of the what, 205, 206 leagues. My yeah. league was 12, the 12th most efficient league. And every week I would look at the bids and they would all be within a, you know, a dollar here, $5 here. Guys would go for a hundred. The backup bid would be 95. So I had to be efficient. And that and, and the, the way to be efficient is to, to try not to overbid. And the way to not overbid is to really understand the value of the guys that you're bidding on. And in the online championships, there are difference makers and then there are streamers. And there are only so many difference makers. There are only so many guys in the 12 team formats, in my opinion, that should be on your roster the whole season. And there's a lot of guys that you can stream in and off your team and you know because there's comparable talent and so maybe there's a guy on the waiver wire he's going to cores or he's going to great american ballpark or he's a lefty and he faces six righties that's a guy to add and you know vice versa you have you know a guy he's going to uh going to some bad ballpark or there's gonna be bad weather or he's a lefty and he faces four righties or they only have five games this week and uh, by using projections, and I, I started, I know there's a question about like what did you do differently uh, versus last year, is I really started to also run my projections in season. And by doing the SGP in season, I was able to identify players that are these difference makers and players that are streamers. And that helps with the cut decision. It's like, okay, the projections don't really see this guy as a guy that I should keep on my roster all year. So I'm okay cutting him versus maybe in years past, it would have been a guy that's like, oh, I have to hold on to this guy. He he's he's too valuable. And that's how the projections kind of eliminate some of those bias and help you identify guys you can cut who who, you know, they may just they're not season long, they're on a hot streak, you ride the hot streak, you drop them, versus, oh, hey, the projections, if there's a guy in free agency, he's a a, a surefire starter uh in in a 12 team format that's a guy i need to be aggressive on and those are the guys that you push for higher bids on and i think that's if you can look at that approach it it helps you realize that a lot of guys you can lower bids on and it's okay if you don't win them because you have your waterfall and you'll win a guy similar i am always comfortable with uh i'm always comfortable that i have a lot of options so if i don't win my top target you know there's a good chance that 
there's a guy in my second, third, fourth conditional that I'm pretty much just as happy with hitting. I think that's one of my biggest a couple of things you mentioned there. I need to do a more diligent job of paying attention to what the rest of the league's doing. That's one thing. Like I try to, but not nearly as much. Like you mentioned, I know Curlin does it a ton. Like I'll be in chats with him and he's mentioned like six guys. I'm like, wow, you really sat there and analyzed it all. And that's how he does his bids to kind of like fine tune it all a lot. So that's definitely an angle that I need to be more diligent at. Um, the other thing is I need to be more just like, like you said, okay with, okay, I didn't get the top guy. Okay. So be it. Like, it's not the end of the world. Like, I think that's part of the problem why overbidding happens a lot is you're like, I have to get this guy. And like, no matter what I have to get, like later in the year, if you have a yeah. bunch of fab left over, okay, go get your guy. Like you got the fab money, right. especially early in the season where you're trying to save it. Like you mentioned, especially early in the season when there should be even more options available on the wire, mm-hmm. be okay with option like C or D even like, just be cool with getting this guy down here, yeah. saving that money for later. I think that's a very, very great point that I think I need to become better at uh, accepting just you don't have to get the best guy every time. That's just the way it works. Because most of these guys are streamers anyways. Like you said, they're not going to be game changers. So why am I worried about overspending for a guy I'm probably going to drop in a week or two anyways? So what's the big deal? Right. And and the how I'll also spin losing bids, if you think about this way, the NFBC shows the backup bid mm-hmm. for all players who were in. So you can't see what – if you weren't the backup bid, you can't see where you landed. But early in the season – I try to see how many backup bids I was. And the way that I spin it is like, yeah, I, I, I lost a player. But I beat 10 other guys. I beat 10 other bids or players' thoughts. So if I win early enough season, if I'm if I'm the backup bid enough times, I know I'm going to start winning my top targets. And obviously, I don't want to lose my top targets every week. So there's some adjustment. But you know, I'll give a, a great example. Jaron Duran, the when he first got called up, he went for $92. My bid was $6. My bid was the backup bid. That's so I knew, and we'll, we can talk about some of my my key ads. Like, okay, so yeah, this one guy maybe just thought Jaron Duran was a difference maker. We have different valuations. Like, that's okay. I was I I would have won him if I was only in a league of 11 and this guy was out because I had a better bid than 10 other teams. And by looking at that, that helps you hone in on how the league is valuing players and helps you uh again figure out maybe guys that you can bid less on or you know maybe there's you know you, you bid six and the backup bid was seven it's like oh okay like i'm i'm off and that helps you adjust i think that's a, a amazing point uh that's where the fab world it's like you know we all sit there and find what people we want to add and then you start putting numbers to it but it, there's so much depth to it that uh the best of the best go to to find the differences and some of it's just something like you've like it's really not even that complicated spend a couple extra minutes and go hey here's here's how it really broke down i was runner up to this guy so that's bigger you know the runner-up bid was even if say you bid three dollars the runner-up was five like okay i was close like we're in the ballpark like right. there's there's something there to to t- a take-home message especially as the season goes on um a couple more fab questions and we'll get into actually acquisitions and drops that you had yeah. this year or whatever um when you're doing fab, like some guys try to budget it out and it's not always easy, obviously based on this year being insane with prospects and all kinds of other things. Did you at least have like a target of how much you wanted left to finish the season? Because 
that's I still had money at the end, but not nearly as much as I wish I had at the end, if that makes sense. Like I had like a couple bucks where even 10 bucks would have been a tremendous difference. Um, did you have a, a plan in place or just kind of it's where the cookies crumbled? Yeah, absolutely. So again, talking about the theme of mistakes you made last year, learning from them, getting better. Last year, uh, I mentioned I finished third in a couple of the both OCs in the last week position to win. I had that Davis Martin and I, I didn't have fab left. And I went, so I got my eighth conditional. I got stuck with him. He blew up and I was so mad. And I learned and I said, okay, I have to keep fab around for the end of the season. And you need that ability to, to go the extra dollar and a couple guys, especially if you have injuries or there's just a better streamer. So you need that, that money to save. And also, if you're the top team, second, maybe even third, the way the NFBC fab works, if, if you're tied on a fab bid, which you could be late in the season when everybody's bidding a dollar, two dollars, you lose on a tiebreaker to a lower place team. So naturally, if you're in first or second, you have to bid more than a dollar because you lose all dollar bids if anybody else bids on them. So really a $2 bid is like a $1 bid for a first place team. So you need that ability to save money. So yeah, I went in and Jason went with Jason's like, okay, we're going to start out with, we're going to hold a hundred dollars in September. And I did fluctuate. We are, uh, my partner, Jason Perkins and I were player first year. We had an OC together. Um, we ended up winning Ellie De La Cruz by a dollar, I think 334 to 333. And we had budgeted out, okay, if we, we win Ellie De La Cruz, how much are we left with? Are we comfortable with this? But instead of holding $100 for September, we, we lowered our September budget to 25. So you can be flexible, but you do want to, based on league tendencies, obviously online championships, sometimes more leagues are active than others. Sometimes you have teams uh, that drop off, so you are less competitive bids. At the end, some leagues, it's not. I, my league that I won the overall championship, the league made its most moves the last week in August that they had made since June. So it was extremely active league. So I, I needed to save a little bit more money because the bids were still competitive to the very end. I wasn't winning guys a dollar unopposed, two dollars unopposed. I, I was bidding, you know, still seven, eight, ten dollars to win, uh, you know, to win guys because I knew that the league was active. So I do try to budget out. Uh, money for September. And I do try to stay with that. It is a moving target because different needs come up, different players come up, you know, you have to fill in gaps or there's guys that just are difference makers that you need to dip into that September budget, but it is important to plan it out and to try to stick to it best as possible because it will help you at the end. Uh, yeah. That, that was a big, big takeaway this year. Like I, I did what I wanted to have fab at the end, but it, I needed like more than four bucks or whatever. Like I needed to be able to get those guys instead of like you said, like your eighth pick, I needed to get like the first or second pick. Like those are the difference makers yeah. from, from cashing or not cashing as silly as that might sound. Um, last thing I will mention before we go over your ads and drops. Um, you mentioned you did a handful of OCs, a couple satellites. How many is too many fab leagues for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I don't think I'm at my max quite yet, but I think this is the, the pro of bringing in a partner. One of the pros of bringing in a partner is, and the reason I, I, I sought out a partner coming into this year, and Jason's been great, I really enjoy working with him, is that 
when you, you bring in a partner that allows you to play in more fab leagues because you have somebody to carry the load, someone to bounce ideas off of, someone, you know, we all have life things. We have weddings, we have kids' events, birthdays, anniversaries, uh, you know, vacations, you know, just things that come up. And so to have a partner to say, hey, you know, I, uh, you, you can't miss a week of fab, you can't miss a lot of decisions, but sometimes you're just not always available for the full amount of time you can have a partner help out. So I would say in terms of fab leagues, I would say I could, I have room for a couple more. I was in five mm -hmm. this year. Um, I may, may have to talk with Jason about what we want to do in terms of satellites versus OCs. Um, I would, I would say a, a couple more is my max yeah, uh, yeah, that because I just don't have the room at that point or the time to do all the details that I want to looking at leagues, you know, tracking things. Um, I don't, I don't want to. And honestly, that's a, uh, something I was looking at the online championship is that there seems to be that sweet spot of if you're, if you're only have one online championship, uh, the average ranking I think was around like 1300, 1330 or so. Um, and then teams that I'm pulling it up. So teams that, only had one online championship this year. Their average ranking was 1,330th. And there was about 700 teams that did that of 2,460. Then if you take the average of average ranking of people who had two to five online championships, that average ranking was 1,177. And that kind of makes sense. You know, I think the reason to try to do more than one is you balance out some injury luck. doesn't matter how... Yeah conservative you are of a drafter injuries will find you fluke hit by pitches you know just things out of the blue you know just just fluke injuries that even the the healthiest guys are prone to um and also fab every league is different right some leagues are you know maybe they're every week they're just outbidding you by a dollar doesn't matter how much research you're putting in they're just on top of every pitcher or they're just hoarding every pitcher you can just you're you need pitching you just can never find it and so by having a, a few different leagues, you're trying to balance out those luck factors that you'll find one league that just everything just works perfectly. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's interesting, so two to five finished 1177 people who had six through nine online championships, their average ranking 1178, basically the same, the same about as two five. Yeah. And then people with 10 or more 1210. Or, so, sorry. So a lot of diversification is what you're coming down to. <laughs> yeah. So like it's a sweet spot. So try to play more than one, but it does. It seems like you don't have to play more than five because yeah. it's just uh, you know diminishing returns. So that's why that's why I upped it to three this year. I kind of like to spread it out a little bit, but not too much. And exactly. it kind of like I, I got and every draft I got every like I drafted one early March, mid March, late March, and each team got better and better as yeah. draft season. And that, that could have been. A I did the same. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did the same. I spread the drafts out, and uh, I think that's a solid approach. Again, it's a way to diversify if there's injury news or prospect news. As ADP shifts, exactly. it's just the way it goes. Like your drafts will change. You might want the same targets, but it's going to completely change as, uh, yeah. like you said, news and everything comes out. It, it mm -hmm. becomes crazy. And you mentioned prospects. So let's really get into fab now because this is where <laughs> it gets fun. Uh, you already mentioned you got LED of the Cruise in the league, but let's talk about this league here. Some of your top fab moves of the year, you have – one of the best potential prospects you picked up here in Matt McLean. 
you got some other guys. So let's talk about your th- uh, your three best hitter pickups you had, and why did you think like the fact you got House on Kim in June for eighteen dollars? That is called game changer stuff. Like um, mm-hmm. he he's just what he was able to provide at the leadoff spot in San Diego was insane. Uh, I wish I believed in Matt McClain as much as other people did because that was obviously great. But what what uh, how did the Kim McClain even Jake McCarthy you have on the list? How'd that all go for you? Yeah, absolutely. So. I, part of what I do in the season is I track, uh, I started doing this year, I heard John Posma talk about it on the Pull Hair podcast with Rob D, uh, tracking the 80th percentile. And I, I thought that makes a lot of sense because it, it allows just to see how your team is doing and where there's room for improvement. So um, I, Early in the season, I, I lost some guys weren't performing. Tyler O'Neill, I was counting on for some seals, not doing well. Javier Baez was terrible. And I, I looked at my projections for my team and I, I knew I was short on stolen bases. And part of that was intentional. Part of that was I, I knew the stolen base environment was going to be unpredictable. So I thought maybe there was opportunity to find these guys later in drafts and also on the waiver wire because we didn't really know who was going to steal more. And by looking at the 80th percentile, I identified very early that stolen bases were in need. And I started, I I didn't wait till the all-star break. I didn't wait till whenever to to work on this issue. I I attacked it early and I had some misses. I I picked up guys like Bryce Terang or Tyrone Taylor early in the year, guys who didn't pan out, just just trying to find somebody who was going to hit. And you know, Taylor Walls guys, just, they were bad. Um, and then I was able to land on Hassan Kim. Again, he, he fit the profile. He looked like he was stealing. He was starting to play better. He, at that point, he was only hitting Lee off, I think, against lefties. But they, you know, it was a good lineup and he was running. And I used some knowledge and from league tendencies that the league didn't seem, this league particularly, didn't really seem to be, for the most part, uh, overvaluing, you know, bidding heavily on these stolen base guys. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I won him 18 to 16, uh, pretty, very efficient bid. And obviously it was a huge game changer. He took off for most of the second half and he was unbelievable. And same thing. I added Jake McCarthy, the same thing. You know, Vlad Sadler had a tweet that he was down in triple a and he was, he was performing well. And sure enough, I thought I could get him for a dollar. He got called up before that week's fab, so I, I had to bid 16 on him. Again, I won pretty efficient. And, again, it was players that I, you know, those were guys that I, I knew they were more helpful for my team, so I was a little bit more aggressive with my bid. And, obviously, part of it is luck, right? I could have caught the one guy who loved Jake McCarthy, and he got for $80. He went, I think, for close to that in one of my other OCs. So part of that is is definitely a little bit of luck that just no one else saw the same thing I did. Um, and then Matt McLean also, I used projections and I saw that projections really liked him. He was a difference maker. And so I was pretty aggressive with him. Uh, 55 was one of my higher wins, you know, for, you know, for the whole year. And I, this really paid off for me for stolen bases. So in week seven, I, I'm looking at it. I was 43rd, uh, actually I was 43rd percentile and I actually dropped in week nine to 33 percentile. And I know this because I picked up Jake McCarthy on that, uh, the ninth, the, the, that ninth week, because he stole like seven bases and I jumped up to 53rd percentile and stole bases. And 
over the course of the season, I made up a ton of ground and stolen bases because I attacked it early and I finished the season at uh, the 87th percentile, 86.9. And I think that's due because I, I didn't wait to attack it. I recognized it was a weakness. I knew it wasn't going to get better with the guys out on my team. And so I needed to find ways to improve and improve quickly. That and those guys sense. were great for me. They did exactly Phen- what I needed. Phenomenal. That's So basically what I'm taking away from a lot of that is, uh, and this goes back to your draft, we talked about getting Olsen and company, get the power early, get speed off the wire. It doesn't always work that way, but in the atmosphere that we were going to live in potentially this year, yeah. seemed like a definite way to go. Uh, on the pitching side of things, now this is where 12 teams get a lot more fun compared to the 15s. Um, Grayson Rodriguez, Tanner Scott, obviously there's a save source late. And uh, even Brian Bayo, like I, I saw this, and I'm like, Brian Bayo was on the waiver wire in your league? Like what? Like that was that's a fun one. I kind of get it because he started the year hurt and then he came back late. But um, what what are your what went through on on those three pickups? Yeah. So Grayson Rodriguez, again, he was just doing really well at AAA, and I saw that. And you know the Orioles don't have didn't have the deepest rotation, so it, at some point he was going to get called back up, and he was performing well at AAA. So I thought he was a worthy stash. Um, Bayo, again, it was just trying to build pitching depth. And this was early in the season. I, I picked up him and Bailey over. I saw them as just as good, if not better, than all these pitching prospects that were getting called up, and they came a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. And again, it was like the Red Sox seemed at that point they're going to keep in the rotation. People had liked him coming into the season as a guy to to grow and he kind of was just kind of under the radar and uh, again he he came for a lot less than <laughs> than a lot you know the a lot of these you know the all these pitching prospects that got called off uh and so I, I just wanted to continue to build that depth and then i put tanner scott on here because uh, you know I, I clearly to win an overall you have to have some luck mm-hmm. and you have to I, I'll never shy away from it. It's skill, but there's also luck, right? Guys hitting their 100th percentile. And where I got lucky unlucky is I got unlucky in terms of I suffered a lot of injuries in a short amount of time. So between the All-Star break and September 1st, I lost four of my top seven picks. I lost Otani, both starting as a pitcher and then as a hitter. I lost McClanahan. I lost Felix Bautista. I lost you Darvish. I lost Steven Matz. I lost Matt McLean. I lost a Baldy. And so a lot of, you know, my depth got wiped away very quickly. I was losing those guys. Bing, bing, bing. Like every week I was like, every day, how could I keep losing these guys? And Bautista, especially when it happened, was at a point where I, I knew I needed the only places where there was really big movement in the standings in the overall competition was wins and saves. And I knew I needed to just keep bolstering those stats. And so I was like, okay, I've got Felix Bautista. He's going to keep getting good ratios and saves so I can add other closers. Um, And then of course he gets hurt. And I was like, oh, great. I just lost my key source of saves all the year. And that happened to be the same week that, Tanner Scott got named the closer on Sunday night. And I was like, I have to have, and I put in, I, I, it was probably the most nervous I've been for, for a bid because 
Nier Kono was actually taken. He wasn't available. So I was, there's one less option to bid on. And I, I won him 16 to four. And he was, I, I think he saved my season. He had nine saves for me for, for basically a month. And I, that, that would have been, I could not have found that anywhere else. Yiner Kono got nowhere near that. It was actually lucky. Again, a little bit lucky. He wasn't available. So. Yeah, he wasn't nearly as good as people thought he'd be for yeah. sure. Uh, so, I mean, I was lucky in terms of I didn't suffer my injuries until later of the year, and then I got a deluge of them. But Tanner Scott was just, like I said, he was a season saver for me with yeah. the stats he had for the last month. It was it was great. And he was you wouldn't think a guy you had for just a month could have that much of a difference, but he did. He did. He definitely did. And that just goes to show you how you couldn't really find saves that often on the wire. So when you could find one, that was even a bigger deal. And you answered a question I had written down is how did you survive like losing Shohei and Bautista and stuff? So. <laughs> That, that that's a good 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 point you had there about just working it and working it. And luckily also it came up like at the end of the year more than anything so you kind of had something going on um before we go into your your like what happened fab moves basically <laughs> uh you mentioned uh watch the the overall standings when did you start watching the overall standings it's yeah. a great question so my i i started watching the overall standings in in about mid June, I'll say. And I knew this team was a contender because around that time, I my team had what I perceived as like not a good week. And at that point, I think in the time they were maybe in the mid-teens of the overalls. And they didn't really fall. Maybe I fall a 10 spots or so in the overall standings. And sometimes what you see in the overall standings, if you have one bad week, your team could plummet just from yeah. 12, uh, my online championship with Jason, we were, we reached a high of, I think, 12th overall. And then in a few weeks, our whole team went cold and we, we plummeted and we were in 12th overall in mid, like mid August. And we fell into the, to the late hundreds. Mm -hmm. And so it, things can move very quickly. And when I saw that my team didn't really drop that much, it's like, oh, I, this team is a contender. And then from that, after that week, they went on an, they, they didn't have a bad week until September. I was just, I would get home runs, stolen bases, win saves. So that's really when I, I knew. And uh, for the most part, I had, I, at that point, for most of the season there on, I, I didn't really have to worry about the league standings. I had, uh, you know, just a pretty good lead where I could really focus on the overall and figure out where my team was weak overall versus in the league. Perfect. And that'll kind of bring me, you mentioned Bayo as rotational depth early when you're looking at the overall so much. And we talked, we've talked a ton about, you know, streaming and this and that, where do you start making even a more important impact? And maybe like, do you look a couple weeks ahead? Do you do anything like look at the overall saying I can gain points here. Let's look like two weeks down the road here and, and start rostering guys. Do you do any of that kind of stuff or do you stick week to week and you just look at like filling positional needs? Like, I guess, it's a weird way of saying how, how do you, did, did yeah. your fab approach change when you started seeing how the overall started taking place? Um, I mean, I think in terms of, I, I, I think I wanted, I, I don't think it changed too much. I think I, I, I wanted probably. to, to week by week, right. Just take it week by week, trying to get the best stats. And I was cognizant of where I was weak or where I thought I was valuable and making sure that I didn't let weaknesses, oh, hey, my guys will turn around. Just are they really going to turn around? Like, am I, do I, 
you know, are, are my guys, my pitchers still good? Are my, you know, not getting con, um, content with just the guys on your team, right? Always, I think one of the, the reasons I, I think I won is I never thought my team was good enough to win. I, I never looked at it. It's like, I got this. I, you know, I'm going to, my team's going to cruise. I was like, this team can't win the overall championship. I, I've <laughs> got to get better. I've got to keep making moves. I, I never just laid down. I, I, I made a deal with myself that I, I, you can never, no matter how hard I work or how much time it is, there are so many things out of my control and somebody could just make better moves than me. And somebody could just have a better team and there's nothing that I could do about that. I can't control who they added, who the teams around me added, who they put in their lineups. I can only control my team. So by that means I cannot control if I, I, if I win or lose. But I said, the one thing I, I will promise myself is I'm, I'm going to give it everything I've got to try to win. And I'm never going to get content with the team I've had. I'm always going to try to find ways to make it better. And yeah, maybe I'll make mistakes. Maybe I'll drop the wrong guy, but I'm going to give it everything I've got and not leave a, what if I had added this guy, what if I dropped, I'm going to really go for it. And that's why I approached it all season long with Fab. It was like, how can I make my team better? Where are the little advantages? How can I just score, get a little bit better here or there? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, just grind, basically grind it all the way to the end is what it comes down to. Never be content until that uh, checkered flag starts waving. So I'm with you there. Let's talk about some of the moves that you're like, why did I do this, basically? Um, you got Winans for 26 bucks. Yeah, I, I guess at, at the moment I could see where Winans was at least somewhat interesting because uh, the Braves and you know prospects and all that kind of good stuff. And then you had Taylor Walls. We, we already know that discussion. You said you got him over Jaron Duran. So that's another one as well, which makes things quite interesting. And then you did even what I did. I did this in a ton of leagues is where you've dropped Tyler O'Neill. Let's go add Tyler O'Neill again. That's always fun because like, hey, he's healthy again. Let's do this. It just it, it came with the expense of CJ Abrams. And then the Tariq Scuba one, yeah, I, I sadly did the same. So going back and looking at that, how, how are your thoughts on the ones that didn't go so well? Yeah, so I – I like to bring this up because I make mistakes and I think, um, I think to, it's important to understand that you can win overall and still make plenty of mistakes. We could, we could do a whole nother podcast of draft mistakes, bad mistakes, lineup decision mistakes. Uh, it's okay. You're not going to be perfect. It's about trying to get more than you get right and try to learn from those mistakes. The win-ins move. I just, I think I, I, I should have watched him that he, he doesn't really, really, didn't have that great of stuff. And it was after he had beat the Mets, he was lined up for a two start. I had just lost a bunch of pitchers. So I was probably, I definitely overbid. And I just, it's like, it's a good matchup. It's a good team. I, again, I, I needed, uh, I, I didn't want to fall behind on wins. It, playing for the Braves, good chance to win. So that's the way I thought about it. But it was just, he just wasn't as talented despite his underlying metrics being pretty good. He just, uh, you know, it, it was just, uh, it's just an overbid from that standpoint. Uh, Taylor Walls, again, is just like not talented. And Jaron Duran, I should have seen. He went for a dollar. And I, 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 again, I just missed. He had a good week that week. He was supposed to face six righties as a lefty. And uh, it should have been an easy stream for a team that needed solid bases. And for that cheap of cost, that was a miss. Taylor, Tyler O'Neill, I just, again, I drafted him. You're, the projections love him. So that's like, oh, if. You know the Cardinals are going to play him. 
he's gonna he's finally healthy again and he just complete bust you know one of my worst draft picks and uh you know i i, I think a lot of people had, if they had known that ali marmal was uh you know gonna do all this stuff it would have never drafted him but no, uh, i think we know that for the future because ali marmal is back and then Tariq screwball was i'm mad at myself because i had the yeah. winning bid and I was going to bid in the mid forties. He went for 42. And I, I don't know why at the last second I pulled my bid down. Like I maybe read some things that he maybe wasn't as good as he suggested. Um, but the projections liked him a lot. And I, 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 I was mad at myself. And then of course I saw him just roll off an unbelievable last couple of months. Uh, yeah, that was, that was just a, I, I had the winning bid and I just, I, I, I brought it down too much and it cost myself a, a win at him. And so that was, a, that was just a mess. Yeah. Scuba was a tough one. I'm with you there. Cause I was so torn on him. Didn't get him anywhere. And that's when looking back would have been pretty, pretty nice. Um, let's just talk about some of the other fantasy discussions here. Like, cause it kind of, we've talked about, you know, the power, the speed and all this kind of stuff, you know, looking ahead to 2024 now, like you've already mentioned how you were more focused on power in this draft and you picked you already talked about your best, waiver wire ass pretty much getting speed uh is that kind of a similar approach you think to 2024 because yeah. i don't see how the steals market changes a ton like you, obviously it'll fluctuate but if the rules are what they're going to be i don't see it changing a ton and, and that's kind of how i think it's going to approach how do you uh, see 2024 and speed taking place yeah it's a, it's a good question and i so i think the difference versus this year versus 2024 is this past year we didn't know the impact of the rules we didn't know who was going to steal more? There was guesses, but we didn't know. Now we know the impact of the rules, and we know that it's going to be the fast guys who have the speed and get on base and have the will and want to run, and they're just going to run wild. And I, I think the question will be, there were a lot of those guys that came off of free agency, in my opinion, in 2023. And I think the thing for, for me and for everyone to figure out is, is if we're going to be better at drafting those guys in 2024, or if they're going to still get a, you know, you're going to be able to pick up guys off the waiver wire who are impactful stolen base guys. So I think that's something that I'm planning to dive into. I'm going to see how the market, the, you know, the early draft market is treating steals and, and some of these steals guys and, and try to figure out if I, uh, if I agree or disagree with, you know, how the ADP is shaking out in terms of that. Um, but I, I think it's a good question. And clearly we're going to need more steals. Uh, we're going to need more steals to compete. I have the 80th percentile, so I can tell you what that is. The 80th percentile for steals in the online championship this year was 198, 200 steals. So that comes out to 14 uh, per 14 per Hello. 14 hitters. Um, and obviously you have a couple catchers who may not steal. So we're going to need more stolen bases than ever. Um, interestingly enough, you needed 23 home runs per roster spot. Uh, there was 322 to hit the 80th percentile. So you, you still need that combination and there's going to be a lot of different approaches to get there. You know, there's the extremes, there's the Asturi Ruizes who don't do anything else except steal. Uh, but he was getting platoon late in the year. There's obviously those power only hitters. So I think you may see more extreme roster builds uh, just because it's hard to get to those stolen base totals mm -hmm. 10 or 15 at a time. I'm not sure if that's something I'm going to do, but it's something I I will look into. 
Um, but it, it'll be interesting. I, what do you what do you think? I'm in line with you. I think it's going to be – we know what it's going to be now. You need the guys that are going to steal a lot. We were like pure speculation going into last season. Like we had our ideas, but I don't think anybody had the perfect formula for the most part. You had some guys pretty darn close. But uh, it's like I said, as I was – I had too many steals. I was winning or top three in like every league in steals pretty much. And so I need to find a way to still get my steals but kind of rein it in and, and worry about other stats. And that's where it'll get fun. Like I've already done that too early DC with uh, Rob and all them. And I got like right. a, I had the first picks. So I got a Cunha. That's obviously nice. But um, like I paired him with um, Lindor, so that's another steals guy. And then I think I can't remember who my other hitter was, but I got like twenty plus steals at each guy potentially. So it allows me kind of room to fluctuate as the draft goes on, where I don't need to pepper it as much. Because for me, I was always get like aiming for let's get you know guys that steal me ten to fifteen bases almost at all times. Yeah. And after a while, that's like that's why I said I need to go. Maybe maybe Jorge Soler would be good for my team later. Like that's probably a player yeah. I, I should look at compared to let's go get another one of these guys type thing. I, I think you it made the point that you were like, oh, I was I had too too many stolen bases. I think that was really easy to do this year mm-hmm. because you, no one knew no one knew Acuna was going to steal seventy yeah. plus bases or or Corbin Carroll. So if you had two, both of those guys on your team, that was like basically all the stolen bases you needed. Yeah. So if you even had even a few other guys who stole 15 or 20, it, it put you over. So again, I think that knowledge, people will have this knowledge now. And so I think, like you said, you're going to see more of a, you know, diversification of where guys are attacking stolen bases. And, and you know, you don't need a, not that you can draft a Cunha and Carroll together on the team anyway, but you don't need both of those guys. Exactly. Uh, you know, you're just going to be too inflated in steals. Yeah, and it gives you, I think, a, more flexibility throughout the draft, knowing yeah. that you, there will be more guys later that can still pick you up maybe 20-plus steals than there used right. to be. And so that's that's pretty nice as well. On the flip side, the pitching side of things, this was a wild year for pitching. Like, we don't really know exactly what kind of ball we had for a while there. It was pretty, yeah. pretty wild. But uh, then, you know, no sticky stuff and all this other good stuff. But – we all said it going into the season and your draft kind of showcased how you had like three kind of aces for the most part early on. Um, there was some like elite talent really early. And then there's kind of like a glob of guys you knew could be ones, but also could fall. And it was just like this weird yeah. section of the draft. And then I don't see that changing a lot. Really. There's still just like a handful of like guys you really, really trust. And there's a ton of other things, let alone innings pitched or down. Cause guys are always getting hurt. Now it's like, if you get 150 innings out of a lot of guys, that's outstanding yeah. these days. So how do you think that market's going to change for 2024? Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, I mean, I think that NFBC teams, a lot of, a lot of drafters are creatures of habit. So I think we're going to still see the pitching get pushed up as we get closer to the beginning of the year. It, it happens every year, regardless of the environment. Um, and I, I think to your point, it's about, it's, you know, having options about being able to put yourself in a position where if guys have bad matchups, you don't, you have other avenues that you don't have to, to use guys in those bad matchups when they face the Braves or they face the Rangers or they're at course field, you know, of course the Rockies stunk. So at course wasn't as bad as it was in the past. Um, but, you know, giving yourself options where you're not backed into a corner. Uh, like we've talked about a lot. A lot of it is about flexibility from the draft, from fab, giving yourself options. And I think starting pitching is the prime example of that. Give yourself options. Give yourself the ability to play the guys with two starts with the good matchups. Uh, 
you know, I, I think that will that will be, be always be a key. I didn't really ask you it when we capped your draft because you you said in the last ten picks you're taking your chances, guys. You can easily drop, so on and so forth. But you did have like a Savali and some other guys there. Were you purposely trying to build depth guys, or how, how were you looking yeah. on draft yeah. day for starting pitching? I guess I think starting pitching is maybe a little bit different because again, you're if you're trying to only use guys in their good. You're looking for skilled players, but again, you're trying to maybe use guys in only their their prime matchups. They're not every week starters for you. You hopefully you capture like an Avaldi, right? That's it. You know, yeah. But when you drafted them, you're right. You're hoping for like certain matchups. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a hundred hundred percent outcome. Yeah. His stats were ridiculous on my team. Um, Savali. So that again was a. I think that was a Bloomboard special. Yes, I think that was, uh, that was Ryan's Ryan guy. Him a lot, yep. and there was a, a few different things. He changed his pitch mix, and you know, obviously the Guardians are pretty good at pitching development. So I think with pitching, it's a little bit lower of a bar, right? You're mm-hmm. you don't need the, the absolute, you know, yeah. high high ceiling, high floor. You're just trying to find a guy that'll be usable and you know take some step forwards where you feel comfortable using him in those home starts, those you know above average matchups. Uh, something you mentioned right before that. How often? I should ask you this during a fab, but we'll go real, real, real quick back to it. Yeah. How often on your fab process are you trying to make a point to get two star guys over guys that'll make your team better per se? Um, I don't know if this will surprise you or not. I very rarely streamed at all on this team. Based on um, your roster, I could see that, especially once you added a few guys to the depth. You're, you're probably pretty yeah. good to go. So again, part of it is I drafted a pretty a pretty good rotation from the start where I didn't have to. But again, it's about building that depth where you're not you have the flexibility. So if there's a guy with a good two star matchup and you think it's a reasonable price, you can bid on him. But you're not reliant on on streaming starting pitching. So you weren't trying to break your bank for it like some other people. Like it sounds like they they pound the drum. You got to have two starts. You got to have two starts. No, only towards uh, only towards the end where again I just. I, lo- I lost so many options, right? Mm-hmm. I, I lost McClanahan. I lost Ibaldi. I lost Otani. I lost Darvish. I lost Steven Matz, who was, you know, a pretty, at that point, a pretty big part of my team. Um, you know, so by that point, I, I did have to dip into the well because it just my depth got, you know, even if I was trying to build it back up, I just kept getting decimated every week with it. So, um, you know, I... I don't, I don't, again, I don't try to go extreme. It's like, I, I don't, yeah. I don't have to have the two-star pitchers, but it's not like, oh, I've never bid on a single one. It's, it's finding the, it's finding that balance. No, I think it's a good point to make though, is you don't have to have the two starts. It's more about, to me, it's more about quality over quantity. And uh, yeah. we hear so many times that you have to have innings, you have to have at bats. And to a point, I agree with a lot of that, but I think it's also with the changing landscape, especially on the pitching side, where I say like 150 innings is good. We're compared to, to like 200 innings. Um, you might take that quality over the quantity every time. And that's just kind of a mindset, again, something I'm trying to continue to remind myself yeah. uh, week in and week. Um, with the same situation, you mentioned getting Tanner Scott. He was one of the big guys on the wire. Adbert Alzale was probably the biggest one at one point earlier in the year, a couple other guys. But in general, was not a massive year for saves on the wire, as so many guys got 20-plus saves, 30-plus saves, Uh, pretty much like a freak year when it comes to the way we've seen things in recent years. What's your guess? Cause we have no clue on how this plays out. (laughs) Yeah. Agreed. It's, it's a crazy situation. Unprecedented to see this stability. 
I was giving this some thought and here's my, my thinking and someone may come back after the show and, and, you know, say some things that make me change this thought, but this is the way that I look at it, that teams use more than one closer or use their presumed high, high leverage reliever closer outside of the safe situation in a few situations. One, when nobody is talented, the presumed closer is not talented. There's the, the rest of the bullpen is not talented. So it doesn't really matter who closes because there's no guy who's better than the rest. They're all about equal. The other situation that I see is that there's one talented player. I think it's like the Dodgers this year. You have Evan Phillips, but the rest of the bullpen is not that talented. Guys underperform, guys get hurt. And so the manager, Dave Roberts, feels like he has to use Evan Robert, uh, Evan Phillips, sorry, Evan Robert, Evan Phillips, uh, Evan Phillips earlier in the game because he can't get to the ninth inning to use Evan Phillips without using him earlier because he doesn't believe in his guys. You know, MLB players are creatures of habit. I think these guys like the relievers. They like to know their roles. 100%. I think the managers don't want – I think they, most of them would say, if gone to their head, that they want to use one guy in the role. Mm -hmm. But because it, if you know your reliever knows he's coming in the seventh inning every game, it's like that oh, – MLB players do the same thing every day. So coming in the – knowing what inning they're coming into is what probably what they want. So I think what we saw this year is – Again, this is anecdotal. This is just me, my own thoughts, is that the bullpens got better, you know, just better stuff. You know, every guy's throwing 95 or 100, where the, I think the Twins are a good example. I think I saw you tweet about this. It's like the Twins' bullpen outside of Duran was really good this year. And so Baldelli just – he didn't have to use mm -hmm. Duran earlier before the ninth. He could save him for the ninth inning. And I think you're seeing that more across the league. This is my – this is how I've thought about it. Somebody could say, like, no, like bullpens were just as bad as ever. It just happens to be a year that, you know, all the closers were so stable. I think the one thing we didn't really see a lot of injuries in the season to closers. You saw very, very true. Edwin Diaz early and, and Bautista late and Albert Alza late, late, but not, you know, uh, Alvarado got hurt, but he was kind of a cold closer. There weren't really a lot of those big in season injuries. Uh, so that's, I don't know. That's my thought. I think maybe the bullpens are getting better where the managers are confident of the guys before they're closer and they can just keep their, 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 the guy we think is the closer as the closer. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think you made some really, really great points there. I think it's, yes, I think most managers prefer just to have one guy. I, I think that uh, it's a great point you make that when a manager uses its quote unquote closer in a different role, it's because they don't have other guys that should be pitching that inning. Like um, like the Twins are a great example. Griffin Jackson's a beast. He can pitch late. They had, they had a handful of guys that can go, so it just allowed Johan Duran to pitch the ninth. Baldelli is a manager we've seen in years past use his best pitcher early in games, and he didn't have to this year because of the strength of the bullpen. So I think there's a lot to be said about that. I think it's also the point you made about teams making their bullpens better, and it goes back to the innings pitch thing. Is There's so many starters in every rotation now that outside of maybe one or two guys aren't going more than five, six innings. So you have to have a strong bullpen. You have to have a deep bullpen that allows you to do these things that you can trust in early inning roles and so on and so forth. So I think there's a lot to what you're saying there that, again, it could change next year. We could be purely speculating on what happened in an insane season where all these guys got saves. But at the same time, it uh, it makes sense. I think teams are changing their philosophies because if you're not if if the innings pitched from your starter aren't expected to go as deep as before, you need a deeper bullpen. You need a, a smart bullpen. So that makes sense. On the flip side of that, 
how do you think that affects relievers getting drafted this year? <laughs> That's the fun uh, part. Yeah. It, I, it, <laughs> I'm trying to think about it. It'll be interesting. I it's think it's a pure guess. It's a pure guess. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think because obviously you have this stability, right? And when you have this stability, one would think that means everybody should get pushed down because if you think this stability, I think it, it, it depends if you think this stability will continue or if this was a fluke year. I think if you think this stability will continue, you could draft saves. You've drafted saves successfully throughout the whole draft pretty much outside of a couple of exceptions like Ryan Helsley. Mm -hmm but pretty much a lot of other guys hit. So if you think that there's going to be that stability, you can maybe push your luck a little bit with the closers. Yep. If you think this year was a fluke and we're back to guys losing their job, you know, you know, guys beginning pitching the seventh injuries, blow ups left and right managers changing who their, their closer is every few weeks. Maybe you push the closers back up again. So I think, I, I I think there's again there's not one right or wrong way to 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 draft you know any position especially closers. So I think it'll kind of depend on on your level uh, level of comfortability as the saves environment as a whole. Um, I I probably. Uh, still not a fan of taking at least in the 12 team leagues of taking a guy in the first few rounds as a closer, because, you know, I, I won't get Matt Olson in the fourth round, but you know, Matt Olson in the fourth round got me 54 home runs, 127 runs, 130, 39 RBIs. And he hit 283. Yeah. You know, somebody drafted Emmanuel Classe this year, two yeah. picks before me. I, I think that Ain't person would it. like that pick over again, if they had the choice. Um, so I think there's just an opportunity cost there of, you know, not saying Emmanuel Class A or whoever goes, you know, maybe haters back as the top closer because Bautista got hurt. You know, that, it, you know, they're certainly talented players, but it's an opportunity cost. If you, you know, you need your home runs, you need your stolen bases, you need your pitching, something's got to give at some point. So I, I agree with that. That's why it's going to be interesting. I think, I think it's going to allow some people to take more chances. Now we'll see if those chances succeed will be the fun part in that mix. Uh, rookie call-ups, this is going to be one that who knows, but an insane amount this year. I usually hate uh, bidding on prospects because I hate overpaying for guys that more yeah. often than not didn't pay out, but you never mm -hmm. know. McLean was great for you. Uh, Bybee was awesome for me. It worked out for, for certain times, not all times. So first off, how did you handle that this year? Yeah. How do you think it's going to take place in 2024? So uh, it's probably an area game. Uh, it's probably one of the weaker areas of my game. I, I'm not really a prospect guy most of the time when these guys got called up that was the first time i'd ever heard of them uh so it, it's not a strong point of mine i it's something i need to get better at because i rely on the projections and projections are not very good at projecting rookies so uh, it's something that i need to figure out in the off season of how to get better at yeah. and one thing i i and this is where i i I won't pretend that I, I know everything and they're smarter people than me at this is I want to hear what the prospect guys have to say on if this level of call-ups are sustainable or, you know, if, if teams are realizing that it's not worth just wasting at bats and innings pitch for these guys in the minors, and they're just going to keep calling guys up uh, earlier and earlier whenever they think they're ready. Uh, and if honestly, and if this level of talent is sustainable, 
will do the teams have this level of prospect to get called up every year? Um, I'm very interested to see what the the very talented prospect guys in the industry have to say. Um, because it, it's definitely a game changer. And a lot of fab dollars went to a lot of these young guys. And it'll be interesting to see if we get the same number of call-ups every week, right? It was a surprise this year, but next year, if we see the same thing, everyone has the approach and maybe some people wish they had kept money for the Bobby Miller, mm-hmm. you know, call up or had more money for Ellie De La Cruz because he got called up later. Right? We don't really know necessarily if all the call, the best calls will happen earlier. So maybe you'll see, you know, less aggressive spending earlier because we know a lot of call-ups are coming. So it's, I have to save some of that fab money True. for, for a, a impact prospect later. So I'm very interested to learn again, talk about things getting better at and learning and there's always room for improvement. It's something I'm interested to learn about this year and, and to figure out how to get better at myself at it. Yep. I'm with you. That's one of my top four things to uh, talk about tonight's show. Um, anything, uh, some other topics here real quick. You met, you've mentioned it a few times working with a partner and this is yeah. one thing that uh, I have been hesitant because I just know the way I operate. I like to like live in my lane, but I'm willing to talk to people and, and have discussions and like, make myself better in that regard. But decision-making, it's hard for me to share responsibility. And that's a fault of mine. I am very aware of, but you've mentioned a bunch of great points to this. So, um, Let's talk about the pros. You mentioned like time yeah. commitment and stuff like that. Like what's, what, what, what were the big benefits this year working with a partner? So I, I think one of the big benefits of working with a partner worked again, uh, say again, Jason Perkins, he's, he's great. Our first year working together. He's a, a really excellent fancy baseball player. And we share a lot of similar you know things, but also we do things a little differently, which is great. And I think that's one of the big pros of a partner is you get a different perspective. You get different opinions. Maybe there's something about a player, a draft, fab that you missed and your partner picked up on it. Well, there's great. You just, you, you, you found a different perspective. It's also good for helping lower your bias. It's a big tenant of the process that uh, one of the reasons I, I use projections, I use BABs is to try to get out of my own head and try to uh, get out of my projections, right? Mookie Betts. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he was going to steal 30 bases because the projections and Babs didn't think he had that skill set in it. So I wasn't thinking about something that was, you know, counting on him for more stolen bases than was reasonable. And having a partner helps that too. It, Jason, <laughs> at one point I was thinking late in August as like dropping Yandy Diaz. Like I, I was, I was hundred percent in runs scored. I, I didn't really have room to make up for runs scored and average. I probably overestimated or underestimated the the level that average could still move. And I was talking about with Jason, I was like, you can't drop Yandy Diaz. Like, I, he's too talented based on the other, like, you know, other guys are using, like, drop somebody else. I was like, I looked at a guy, I was like, yeah, you're Jason, you're right. So it helps, um, you know, balance out, you know, just balance it out and, and get a different perspective. Um, and in addition to the time management, right? You have somebody else to help with lineup decisions, to bounce ideas off of, to, to do fab, to to tag team if you have a couple of different teams uh, and to ask questions also, right? Jason and I both have our own leagues that we manage independently. So sometimes he'll ask me questions. I'll ask him questions. Who are you starting this guy? You know, what do you think about this? I, I think uh, I, I'm always, I always looking for opinions and advice. I'm not afraid to ask for fab, for fab advice, for lineup help. Because, again, there's someone that an analyst may 
see, they may see an angle that I didn't see. And it's important to bring in those opinions. Like I, you know, you don't get a, there's no bonus for doing it. You, you know, you don't get extra money for, cause you made every decision just on your own thinking. So just for being stubborn. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and you're going to be wrong and there's going to be, you know, yeah. sometimes it's like, Oh, there was someone recommended a lab decision and it's like, Oh, I don't, I don't know about that, but it, it makes sense. And you bring in what other people think, plus Rudy's uh, streaming things and some other rankings. Rotoballer's got rankings. Pitcher list has got rankings. Uh, Rotowire's got rankings. You kind of bring in different sources and that helps kind of form. It's like, okay, like, what's the wisdom of the crowds? Think? What's, you know, what's the most probable outcome here? So I think that's the, you know, the big pros of a partner, big pros of asking for advice. Um, I encourage, you know, it's also good for, Hey, take a look at my team. Maybe they see something about your team. I, you know, I, I, I would ask people, ask people it's like in season, do you think, you know, where do you see the holes in my team? Cause I, I've been looking at the team every day for four or five months. I fall in love with guys, right? Maybe they're, I'm blind to something. And I think it's good to get that outside perspective. You know, it's like work. It, you want somebody else to check your work. You want somebody to give a second eyes on it because when you're so involved in it and you're so involved in the details and a minutia, sometimes you lose a bigger picture or you lose, you know, just an area that you're not, as, you think you're stronger in and somebody looks at it and you're not that strong in some bases or, you know, I think you're pretty vulnerable in saves. Uh, and you're like, oh, that's a good point. So I, I think that's... Uh, that's a, a big tenant for me is, is don't be afraid to, you know, get opinions from, uh, from a partner, from an analyst, uh, utilize your partner, you know, help your partner out also when, when they, he or she has, has questions and, and really work as a team. No, I love it. And that's, I think that's something I need to do better of is I guess I, I get worried about like draft day and stuff like that, but the, the in season stuff, it could be invaluable. The way you talk about it, it could be a, a tremendous help. So, yeah. I agree with that. You also mentioned setting up SMART goals, and that is an acronym, folks, SMART, that yeah. is heavily utilized. So what are you talking about when you say set SMART goals? Sure. So like Bubba said, it's a, it's an acronym. It stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, uh, Realistic, and Timely. And I think it's important when you go into a season to figure out what you want to achieve that season. I did not come into this season thinking that I wanted to – that my goal was to win the overall championship. My goal coming into the season was I had three online championship teams. I was like, I want to win two out of the three. I want one of those teams to compete for overall. And the reason I wanted two out of three is in the NFBC, if you win a certain number of contests, you get a badge on your profile. And if I won, I won one a couple of years ago. And I, if I won two, I, I would qualify for the badge. I wanted that nice. silly badge. <laughs> well, that's why I have a badge now. I was curious what that was yeah. from. Like, all of a so, sudden it showed up. I wanted that badge. So uh, the goal, and then my other goal was like, I wanted to do well enough to get invited on a podcast. And my fiance, who is great, and we got engaged in July on a Sunday, and I gave up fab that night, and I proposed to her on a Sunday night in July, and she's amazing. And I think it's a, there's no better way to show commitment to somebody than when you're shooting for overall <laughs> to give up a Sunday night to, to propose somebody to show that you truly love them. Uh, and Sam is the best. And 
you know, when I would get through the middle of the season, Sam would, and my team would have a bad day or two. She would remind me, so like, what were your goals at the beginning of the season? Like you're achieving those goals. Even if your team doesn't win the overall, you've, you're doing what you set out to do initially. And as the season went on, my goals adapted. I realized my teams were winning. So I would move up my goal. Okay. I want to be first. I want to just touch first overall in the overall standings. Okay. I did that. Okay. Move on. Set up a new goal. I want to be first overall by the end of Sunday. Uh, get overall at the end of Sunday. NFBC sends out an email. I, you, you know, they'll put out the winners. Sometimes you make a headline. So I wanted to be in that email by the end of Sunday. Did that. Then it was like, okay, get featured in a headline. Keep, you know, keep being a first headline of the email. Okay, I did that. Finally, I got to that, and it was like the middle of August. That's when my goal became to win the overall. Championship. Win the whole thing. Yeah. And. You know, so I, I think that's important. And honestly, next year, I was reading the the, the post that that uh, Greg put out. Um, no team has won the online championship more than once. So I don't even know next year. I mean, uh, you know what my goals will be, but you know, it may not even be realistic, right? Yep. Talking about re realistic goals, it may not even be realistic to say to win the overall mm -hmm. championship again because no one's ever done it before. So it, it it's not like I have a, there's a precedent behind it. So I I think you want to keep keep those smart goals in mind, and you know, they, like I said, you can change them and you can grow your goals as they go on. But start with things that are you know you can measure success that you think are attainable that are realistic. Uh, and, and I think if you set your way up for success that way, then you know, you're put yourself on a path to achieving those goals. And then you can look back and if you didn't achieve them, okay, where did I come up short? How do I adjust for next year? And if you hit those goals, okay, how do I expand those goals and, and make them more challenging the following year? I, I love it. That's a, like you said, the realist with the R and smart is I think one of the biggest parts of that. Make sure they're realistic. Like we can all yeah. set goals. We can all want to be astronauts, go to the moon. We can all do things like that, but let's just be realistic. And like, for me, my, this was like my first like heavy OC. Like I think I did one or two last year. Like I'm doing three this year. My goal is to compete. Like I just want to compete. I want to show that I learned something I competed. Obviously like ideal, I was like, I want to win two out of three or something, but I hadn't got there yet. I hadn't won the league yet, but I want to compete and show I learned something from last year, yeah. got to this year. I got pretty darn close. I didn't finish it. And that's what makes me mad. But it was like, okay, I made that step. So now my realistic goal next year, like, okay, let's win at least one. Let's win one of the three. Uh, and let's go that direct. Realistic goals. Not like, hey, I want to win every league I'm in. Yeah. I want to finish. Like, that's like, come on. The baseball's crazy. It's six months. Injuries happen. Like, certain teams, you just have no chance. It's just the way it is. Like, one of my three OCs, the one I drafted in the beginning of March, I think, it finished 12th. And I busted my ass every week in FAB just to try to get out of 12th. And with every injury, I just did, but it was impossible. Like, there was just nothing I could do about it. And it was just the way it works. But and that um, happens. yeah, yeah it, it happens. It, it, but like, so that's why realistic goals are necessary to take place. So I, I love that. I love the whole thing about it. Uh, set up goals to succeed. And that's a very, all parts of life, not just fantasy, but oh, yeah. that, that, that'll help you everywhere you go. And congrats. Uh, yeah. She, uh, you got a winner there for the fact she lets you do all this stuff, but for the fact that you gave up a Sunday night in July, that's yeah. You, and you didn't cheat. You didn't go like, Hey, it's all-star break. I'm going to go like, Hey, it's a small fab week. Like we're going to go do this. So kudos to you. Um, let's hit a couple listener questions here and then we'll, we'll wrap this one up here. It's been a, a good one indeed. Uh, do, do, do. Ben Tid, good friend of the show, been on the show many times. Good guy. Um, and he, 
he fared well last year in the, the main event. He asks you, Drew, what pick and what waiver ad do you think helped you the most? Sure. So I'll give you I'll give you two two picks, a hitter and a pitcher. So Matt Olson, I, I decided his stats earlier. Uh, I always I give a little chuckle. People are like, oh, you know, have to draft a Matt Olson. You can get his stats, you know, in later in the draft. It's like good luck getting what Matt Olson did later yeah. in the draft. Two eighty three. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so he clearly was an unbelievable pick. He just was two players basically in one with the amount of stats he put up. So he was incredible. And then Nathan Avaldi, uh, just to, I, I didn't get his full season. I, I did bench him at times early in the season. So I got a hundred innings out of him on my starting lineup. He had nine wins, a 2.86 ERA and a 1.0 whip. And he had 95 strikeouts. And that is incredible for where I drafted. Yep. Um, and then in terms of the the waiver wire, we talked about these guys. I Of the guys we talked about, I'd probably say Hassan Kim, uh, just because the stats he put up on my team were, were really great. And I encourage people in the NFBC, or honestly even Yahoo also, is go look at your year-to-date, your accumulated stats. Because if you just look at uh, a player rater end of season values, it, you know guys who got hurt or guys who were – sucked for part of the year but then were productive they're not going to show up well on a player raider but on your team they were pretty like very valuable so i mean hasa kim was incredibly valuable also he stole i think 27 bases on my team and uh i'm trying to find him let's see yeah uh he sold 27 bases and he hit 268 and he was just Awesome score, oh, 56 runs. Um, but like, Jake McCarthy is a great example, right? I only had Jake McCarthy for a couple months, and he was also valuable. I didn't absorb all the suckage that he was mm-hmm. at the beginning of the year, and obviously he got sent down. So uh, take a look at the set that you actually accumulated for these guys. I think that's a big takeaway, and you may find that some guys were you know, more valuable on your team uh, than their full season numbers would suggest. 100%. Um, Mike Curlin, he, he has a question for you. He says, what was the biggest addition to your 2023 prep that you credit for making the largest impact? And so you see a way to build off that to further improve. Yeah. So great question, Mike. So I think one of the big things is every year I just get more comfortable with my draft tools, with the SGP, with the with Babs, just again, every year you just learn little ins and outs of how they work and how to manipulate them and make them the most useful possible. Uh, so I, I think that's always that's always a big thing for me. And then I think that the big takeaway or big thing improvement was my in-season management. So this year I started tracking the 80th percentile. I started tracking FAB and I, I think I can do that better next year to track it a little bit more in depth, maybe by week. Uh, I would look at my SGPs in-season. I, I ran them in-season. Uh, which I hadn't done in the past. And I, I think that's where I really took the step forward is that in-season management. 100%. It's a, one of the hardest things to do for six months. So if you can pull it off, that's a humongous win. Um, Book of Calm, great listener to the show, great person. He has two questions. First question, what was the biggest change in your, I guess you just answered yeah. this, biggest change in your process and everything. Second question, what change do you want to make to your analysis for next year to help you go back to back? Yeah, it's also a great question. And I I talked about it 
briefly before, but my prospect knowledge and the, the rookie, you know, rookie knowledge is, is not great. Um, part of that is just a lot of, some of these guys are just not always valuable in 12 team formats, but there definitely are the guys that are valuable and it's it trying to get better at identifying and evaluating the rookies and prospects and figuring out which ones are 12 team viable and which ones I should be keeping on my radar and believing in because they're the guys that the projections get, we talked about this. They're the ones that the projections get wrong the most at the most uncertainty. They're going to have the, they're going to have higher risk on in babs uh, just because of lower experience levels, but there are exceptions and there are guys that do stand out. So I think that's where I want to get better at because it does seem like potentially the call of these big number of calls could be here to stay. Yeah, uh, I think it might be a new wave of the way things work for uh, teams to save money these days. So we're going to see that more often. So uh, I think that's a a thing. I wanted to shout out real quick. You mentioned Rob McCabe. We've talked about him a lot on the show before. On Twitter, at Nation, S-L-E-E-H-R-A-T Nation. He's got a lot of good stuff. And he said he's got some deeper research he plans on bringing out here pretty soon. That'll be pretty cool. But awesome guy with uh, cool fab stuff. But Drew, we're going to wrap it up there. This has been a great time talking to you. I, I'm going to have to go back and listen to it myself. Not list a lot of my shows a second time, but a, a wealth of information. Uh, any final thoughts on an amazing 2023 season? I would say that it's just been such an incredible season. I, I tried to make sure I enjoyed it the best as best way possible. Uh, it's a it's a it's just a fun game. I, I I love everything about it. I'm so blessed to have the success that I had. I really appreciate all of the support that I've received from the community and and so many people reaching out and sending me congratulations. And I'm very much appreciative of that. And I'm very much appreciative of all the amazing content providers out there. I would not be in this position without the great content of all the hard and all the people you're at your, at the top of the list of people who work so hard to put out so much great content uh, before the season, during the season, after the season, I would be nowhere without it. Uh, so I, I'm very thankful for that. And I always have to thank, thank my family, thank my fiance. Like you mentioned, they let me have those Sundays. They mm-hmm. let me have those Sunday afternoons and those Sunday nights. They understand. And they've always been incredibly supportive. supportive. Uh, so uh, just a lot of thanks. It's been an incredible season, and I could have never have dreamed it. So I'm very lucky to be in this position, and I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me on. I had a blast, and it, it's always great talking fantasy baseball. So uh, excited to take a break, though, to be honest. I'm going to take I, a little bit of time I, off. <laughs> I, I don't I don't blame you. Like This is my version of a break. I'll just do a few podcasts a week, and I'll kind of lay off the, the riding for a week or two. That's as sad as it gets that's my break but that's just kind of what this is what i love to do so it's a kind of part of the deal but um congrats man absolutely awesome stuff well deserved um i look forward to chat with you again i'm gonna, I'm gonna have to have you on again and we're just gonna talk actual yeah. 2024 season stuff like we, this, this was great talking strategy like I, I everyone's got a different way to do it like and i absolutely sure. love hearing the angles and what works what wants to be better so on uh it, it's been awesome i even got a couple texts throughout the show that people are watching saying how good this was so um really really awesome. good stuff my friend and I, I look forward to chatting again sometime thanks Bubba. thanks so much i appreciate no it problem. everybody make sure you check him out on twitter at fru underscore dorte that's drew forte or otherwise known as the 2023 nfbc oc overall champion this is bench with bub episode 608 catch you all next time
way to win up to 25 times your money this football season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of statistics, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and an enormous selection of players and stat options are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million football fans who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/get100 and use code GET100. That's code GET100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy.